for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. It is nice to record just like laying in my bed. You think I'd be happier about this, (laughs) like living the dream of being in my pajamas full time. It's just that the circumstances of it are so brutal, you know? I I know it feels it like it doesn't feel luxurious. It like feels undignified. (laughs) Like, I really wish that it were a situation where you and I were both, like, on fainting couches, like, kind of turn-of-the-century aristocratic women, but um, that's not the case. We're just uh, kind of sitting in our own our own filth in our, in our bedrooms. <laughs> I mean, this still doesn't, this doesn't, this still doesn't feel normal to me, but it is, like, I am settling into a routine. I have been able to start reading again, which is really good. I was like blocked mentally and just like couldn't read and I was I couldn't concentrate to save my fucking life. Um, but I I uh you know, found a, a hack which was just uh putting my phone and my computer in the other room. That's all it took to be able to read eighty pages of a book in one sitting. Yeah, I think last night was the first night I read a book in a while. Uh, I am stocked up on books. Uh, I just got an Ursula Le Guin book. Um, But uh, last night I was reading Without Apology, which is this book about how to protest effectively for abortion rights by an author named Jenny Brown. It's out on Verso Books. And so far, it seems really good. It's kind of goes into what the liberal perspective on uh, abortion rights is and why that is too limited. I'd really love to have her on the show sometimes. But yeah, in general, I'm kind of settling into a routine here. You know, I've been cooking, uh, watching TV, pretty much living the suburban lifestyle in Brooklyn, uh, and there is definitely something nice about it. I understand why people like it, um, but uh, it would definitely be nicer if uh, it was going to end at some point soon. <laughs> yeah, honestly, knowing it's going to end would be sick. Um, would extremely love that. Um, yeah, it's been, I have also, I've been, you know, we've all been cooking up a storm. I've just been uh you know having a lot of conversations with my roommate because she's the only person i see um so that's good i'm so glad i like my roommate um yeah it would be really tough to not like your roommate right now uh that would be a very very intense situation um yeah the god i just oh how grateful i am every single day that that um my current roommate is here um but yeah anyways i i don't know i'm losing a a hold on on reality i think but that's to be expected i think i have a pretty good core situation going right now i've been uh coring with jake and uh honestly he loves the core uh he's fully thriving um he has decided that all of his problems were outside uh all of his distractions from uh productivity and uh he's just in the other room being 
productive right now, becoming his best self uh, all day and all night. I think I think that if you're thriving right now, you should be sent to the hospital. There is something there is a deep sickness within you if you if this is like a, a nice respite for you. I don't yeah. know. Um, I think for extroverts, it might be harder. Well, think about it. Think about what he loves. He loves online. That's true. And boy, is there a lot of online uh, to be had. Um Yeah. I love I love that for him. I'm well, you know, I'm glad I'm glad somebody is is thriving in this uh strange time. I also have been trying desperately to get Ed Markey on this fucking podcast. Senator Ed Markey of of Massachusetts. Um I'm a huge we're we're I would say that is it fair to say that you and I are both stands of Senator Markey? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, um, you know, I think as far as podcasts go, uh, outside of Massachusetts, uh, we are probably the podcast that talks about Ed Markey the most. Uh, we stand a, a climate conscious king. Yeah, so, and Ed Markey's comms director tweeted about us uh, this week, get Ed on the podcast, this is what I said to him, and I I'm I'm trying my hardest. I I DM'd the campaign, uh, but you know we are gonna we're gonna get Ed Markey on this podcast, and we're gonna get a fucking Green New Deal. All right, those are my solemn vows. <laughs> yeah, I need to know Ed Markey's position on the New Deal for Reply Guys. Um, you know, uh, can people get some kind of compensation per tweet or what? I mean, these guys are working their ass oh, off been... during this time replying. I know. Yeah, I mean, as you just said, you are quarantining with one who is who is just day and night in the trenches and yes. replying. Yes. Um, yeah, but um, everyone went, you know, went crazy because um, Ed Ed Markey uh, had a great a great core picture with some like old Air Jordans. And um, AOC tweeted about it. I don't know. He's very cool. He's very stylish. Am I attracted to every picture of Ed Markey from the 70s? Yes, absolutely. Um, But that is my cross to bear. And that's something that I need to talk to my priest about, I guess. Um, Uh, Speaking of old hot guys, you know that people were calling Dr. Fauci pandemic daddy? Oh, my God. Yeah. And that really... (laughs) People need to throw some cold water on that, but... I think that people are just attracted to anyone that seems vaguely competent right now. Um, Like, a couple weeks ago, people were getting a boner for Cuomo. Uh, And, by the way... uh, Exactly. Cuomo fucking sucks. Yeah. He's a really, really bad governor. Yeah, I mean, like, our state, you know, we have the most coronavirus cases in the United States, like... Okay, maybe that would have been true no matter what, but it's certainly true, at least in part, because he had a dick measuring contest with Bill de Blasio, who's uh, the mayor of New York City, and he didn't want to shelter in place when de Blasio called for it because de Blasio called for it. And, you know, those days certainly would have meant that more people would be safe and alive, Um, you know, 
people are saying that uh or- i tend to think that and i will never you will never hear me defend andrew cuomo and i won't do it um yeah i think that it would have happened and i think we would have had the most cases anyways um just because i feel like the testing was like other states have not had the level of testing that new york has yet so like we have the most confirmed cases certainly but yeah Cuomo and de Blasio have this eternal rivalry that is just, it's like a schoolyard match. It's so stupid. And I've been watching back and forth every day, almost every day I've been watching both of their press conferences. And I mean, Bill de Blasio overall has better politics, but it is just hard to... I mean, he's just like a goof. I don't, he's not a good executive for like, mayor of New York City is one of the most important jobs in the fucking country. I don't, I mean, like, I can see why people, even though Andrew Cuomo has his whole like rat pack, like bada bang, bada boom delivery, I, I still think he comes across as like a better executive and optics are so important to people who don't pay attention to politics very often, I guess. So I can see why people would be like, oh my God, Andrew Cuomo is doing such a good job. But he's not, he still has not uh, put a moratorium on rent as he did with foreclosures and mortgage payments. So um, he sucks. And, but yeah, I mean, he's like, he can read a teleprompter. That's all I'll say about Andrew Cuomo. And that's why people think he's competent, because he can read words and numbers. That's it. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, there's there's a, a, a few things happening that we wanted to talk about. Um wanted to talk about uh, someone who is uh, definitely not attractive, uh, and that is our, our old friend jeff bezos and when i say he's not attractive i i mean uh no no body shaming here i mean in his in his soul there's something repulsive about this man he is a bad bad person um he he does look i mean he has but i i will i will shame his appearance and say that he looks like a low-rent lex luther like he doesn't look like he looks like a villain but like an uglier one like usually comic book villains are a little bit more attractive um but uh no but that is yeah obviously the least of his his worries amazon is one of those companies that has massively profited one of the very few companies that has profited immensely during the coronavirus um not only because of Amazon, the company, but also because Amazon owns Whole Foods and grocery stores are some of the only, you know, essential services that can remain open. And grocery stores are doing huge business right now. Yeah, and and they have the delivery service too, Amazon Fresh, right. right? And boy, is none of that profit going to workers um, who, yeah. I do want to return to the important uh, themes of the way that uh, Jeff Bezos is treating his workers. But I do also want to say on the note of his attractiveness, uh, when he got a divorce, I think maybe a couple years ago at this point from, you know, or no, maybe like a year and a half ago. I remember because I broke up with someone the same month. So it was like, oh, wow, we're all in this together. But um, yeah, he uh, (laughs) in his divorce statement, they, you know, they talked about how they had like an open marriage, you know, and it was just like. Yeah, no, it was fucking gross oh, because gross. it was like it was just so look, 
uh, Julie and I are not trad. Uh, I, I, in particular, don't think monogamy is uh, something that all people need to do by any means. Uh, it's not that kind of leftist podcast. Uh, we're not trad cat or anything. Right. Um, but uh, it is gross on on some level to think about jeff bezos being like a weird ass bay area sex party guy that's nasty as fuck um oh yeah tech nerds get laid so much in the bay area i, I will say yeah ew oh that's so upsetting and i will say you know i am only trad in that i think that women shouldn't be allowed to speak in public um or hold any positions of power that's the only way in which i am trad but other than that i'm (laughs) i'm a modern gal um i'm not trad um i would say that i am a a liberated woman except for um i feel like if you uh, talk about liberating anything right now it makes uh makes people think that you don't uh want to (laughs) abide by social distancing rules (laughs) yeah uh, right. I am at home in the kitchen where I belong. Um, all right. So let's Absolutely uh, same. talk about Whole Foods for a second. Um, there was a piece that came out in Business Insider, our fave publication this week. Uh, yeah. That, <laughs> so fave, Whole Foods is keeping an eye on stores at <laughs> risk of unionizing through an interactive heat map, according to five people with knowledge of the matter and internal documents. Um And so they have this like scoring system uh, for like, you know, what the risk of each store's unionization is. Uh, Employee loyalty is on that turnover, racial diversity. They have a tip line to call human resources, uh, proximity to a union office and uh, violations recorded by OSHA. Um, It's uh it's really fucked up they're really putting in no it's it's like um it's full panopticon shit and uh it's amazing that they're so profitable right now and that they're really just uh going out of their way to make sure uh that their workers do not organize for uh higher wages or better benefits or better treatment um more ppe uh it's very disgusting man that uh, the osha violations thing is really sticking out to me because like the implicit there is that like the more osha violations the more i would assume the more likely uh uh workers would be to unionize but like osha violations are really fucking serious so the conditions have to be like pretty bad to begin with (laughs) Oh my god, that makes me man, I want to like <sighs> I mean, there are not enough like medieval torture devices in museums for what I want to do to Jeff Bezos. I just like he is a villain like I wish I had I wish I could say like the world has never seen, but we have seen I'm many before and I'm sure we will see many I'm sure the the railroad tycoons of the of the early 20th century were were as yeah, bad. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just uh, it's just really really disgusting. And if you, if you do for some reason, if you listen to this podcast and you work for Whole Foods and uh, you are interested in unionizing, uh, feel free to slide into my DMs and I will 
personally make sure to put you in touch with someone uh, that can help you unionize and I will not broadcast it in any way. Uh, I just, we really hate uh, Jeff Bezos. So um, speaking of Amazon workers, uh, Amazon workers uh, are now planning a uh, nationwide protest uh, to demand coronavirus protections. Um, this is, uh, it's it's so fucked up that they have to do this. I mean, it's like, obviously, Amazon should protect its workers without uh, there needing to be a protest. But it is, you know, uh, it is heartening to see that people are standing in solidarity and organizing themselves. Um, so workers are going to do an a mass walkout across the country starting tomorrow um, and throughout the week. Um the workers are calling for Amazon to immediately close down any facilities that report positive cases and to provide testing and two weeks pay of workers during that time. They also want sick leave, health care, um, rate based quotas that make hand wash and, and to eliminate rate based quotas that make hand washing and sanitizing impossible um, and uh, no retaliation for employees who speak up about the unsafe conditions. I think all in all, extremely reasonable demands. Um, it's fucked up, right? Because it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, Amazon, as you noted, is just making so much money. And honestly, there are so many people that are relying on Amazon right now to get their essential goods and, you know, can't really, can't really fault people for that. Uh, I don't, you know, it's, there's just, there's no way to get a lot of other things that you need, especially if you're um, older or immunocompromised, you know, you need to, I mean, there's like other, other retailers, you know, but I mean, there's just a lot of people who need to use this because it's, you know, I think in, in some cases the lowest prices and it's, it's just fucked up, you know, it's a very, yeah. very, very hard time to, uh, to like, not use Amazon for a lot of people. Um, yeah, we need to nationalize Amazon. Yeah. Absolutely. And we need to humiliate Jeff Bezos on a, a recurring yeah. weekly television show in a different way. Um, yeah, I really... And also, it's like, to your point, their demands are incredibly reasonable and you know, I've been in, uh, I've been a union member for the last three years and I've, um, kind of watched on the sidelines as, um, my last, the last union I was in before this one, local 2110 was doing contract negotiations and the demands are usually pretty fucking reasonable and you're usually up against these you know, in my case, it was a university whose endowment is $10 billion and Amazon is the most profitable country you said in it was the a fucking country? world. It's actually a company, but and it feels like it's a country. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, I, oh, did it, I say country? pretty much oh, is. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have, it is, uh, it's very, yeah, it's, uh, the fact that they nickel and dime their employees just makes it's it frankly makes a lot of sense it's like no one becomes as rich as jeff bezos is without exploiting 
hundreds of thousands of people below him. Um, and that's exactly what he does. And every person who works at a fucking grocery store, including Whole Foods, should be making thirty yeah. plus dollars an hour. More. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, more. You know, people keep being like, "Oh, grocery store workers are heroic," but it's like, yeah heroes yeah well fight for them to have a living fucking wage plus more like not just yeah it's like i don't even i don't even like living i like i want people to right. have a good life these people right. deserve and to I have a good think life that many people want to risk their lives for 11 dollars an hour i mean there's there's probably no, some people not. who work at grocery stores uh that are like yeah you know this I really want to do this to make sure that people have food in a pandemic. But uh, I would imagine the absolutely overwhelming majority of people who are working at grocery stores right now are doing it because they need money to survive. And it's just, yeah, uh, it's really gross uh, watching the extent to which uh, this has laid bare the fact that, um, corporations literally will kill people to just make a little bit more profit um and uh speaking of that um let's 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 talk for a second about this like fucking betsy devos shit so we're seeing these protesters from all over the country um it's been definitely uh a lot in michigan that are uh like the right-wing groups uh that are Claiming to speak for ordinary citizens. Um, and they, you know, you, we saw like signs and, you know, um, these people uh, are saying that they want to be uh, liberated and that the shutdowns are infringing on their constitutional rights. And, you know, basically they're, uh, you know, anti-lockdown demonstrations. But the thing is, is a lot of these protesters are actually paid protesters and they're not uh it's no it's not george soros this time um the, yeah um this is uh these marches in 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 michigan are actually um or these protests in michigan were actually funded uh by a right-wing group um the michigan conservative coalition um and uh it was also heavily promoted by the michigan freedom fund which is a group linked to betsy devos and uh, you know, of course, she's the secretary of education. And let's just like stop for a second and think about like how fucked up is it that the secretary of education is like in any way involved in uh, protests against a public health measure, you know? I mean, I yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very difficult to be to continually have this this take like i can't I believe know. this is happening i can't believe someone in this government is dipping into their own pocket like is is like lining their own pockets with the strife of others in this country and like abusing their position but like of course and um obviously uh betsy devos uh is married to the heir to the DeVos fortune and the DeVos family runs the Amway Corporation, which is like basically one of the original uh, pyramid yeah. schemes. Uh, <laughs> and they're like hyper conservative. Um, yeah, they're like, there's God, I really, I could 
I'm, I'm sure the books will be written about the corruption of that family. Uh, but it's funny because the fact that these protests are so orchestrated is kind of obvious because people were doing like side by side comparison of the signs and they were like written in the same print. So it looks like they were just like given these signs with the same sort of like not handwriting, but it like looked, it's meant to like look like handwriting. I don't know. I don't want to like, not to get like too woo woo conspiracy theory, but uh, it's like very, they're just being very obvious and very stupid about it. And I feel badly for the people who have been like duped by the Fox newses of the world, telling them that them staying at home makes them like unfree. And also a lot of the Fox news hosts are straight up lying about the death tolls. Um, who was it? Who, The lieutenant governor of Texas this morning was on with Tucker Carlson and he said there are more important things than living. You know, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, uh, ordered the reopening of businesses this morning, including like um, hair salons and nail salons and bowling alleys. And, you know, it's like it's just really fucked up because it's like the people who have to go back to work are a lot of the times the people who are making the least amount of money and these people, you know, to the extent that, you know, this is a real sentiment and not just being funded by huge corporations, they're not protesting for their own ability to go to work. They're protesting for other people to have to go to work and risk. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're the protest is about risking other people's lives. And in, to some extent, um, you know, a lot of this is like, you know, this is just people who like own businesses uh, wanting their employees uh, to have to come back to work. And it's just it's really, really disgusting. I mean, and it's like, yeah, obviously we can't live in a state of complete shutdown uh, for, you know, years and years or something like that. Um, nobody wants that. The social uh, and emotional cost to that would be enormous, even if the government provided like universal basic income. But there are ways I think a lot of epidemiologists think to like reopen more safely at some point down the road with like a lot of testing and a lot of contact tracing and um, quarantine facilities where people can isolate away from their families so they don't get their whole family sick. And uh, we are not doing any of that stuff. Like there was a bill um, today, uh, the kind of a second round of aid and Democrats didn't even put um, didn't even push for contact tracing. You know, it, it's like it's really, you know, Republicans have obviously been like the most ghoulish. But the Democratic response to this has just been been horrible as well. And it's just it's starting to feel like there's just nobody at the helm of this thing whatsoever. It's really scary. It it really is. And we need like I, I mean, I hope that there is. I, I, this is one one of the times where I actually hope that like the mainstream media and the coverage of like the death tolls and how serious this is, is convincing people. And I hope people are paying attention to it because you do have people like Sean Hannity reporting the death tolls as being zero. And like, <laughs> um, and to your point, 
rich people are more than willing to throw the bodies of uh, poor and working class people in front of this virus so they can get back to having their, their haircut, like, comforts. Their haircuts fucking suck. Um, and you know what? Their haircuts. I mean, it's like, I live in New York, okay? This is a place where when we're allowed to go out again, uh, we're gonna party and fuck. <laughs> Some of these old-ass boomers that are out here protesting, what are they gonna do outside their house anyway? Their hair already looks very bad, uh, and uh, they're not having any fun. What's the point? I don't know. I mean, yeah, does my dad's hair look very strange <laughs> right now? Sure. Is it going to look even worse? Yes. Uh, but there are more important things oh than my, my god, dad is your dad like an anti-shutdown uh, um, anti person? No, 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 he's not. He uh, actually, similarly to Jake, is thriving, um, having to do nothing. Um, he, My dad is on the... He's the chair of the Park and Rec Commission of my hometown, and he, my dad drives around making sure that no one's on the field. So my dad is a <laughs> narc to his bones, and uh, yeah, just making sure that no one's walking their dog off a leash on that his so fields. Funny. That's what he calls um, them. But that's that's all he does. He goes to the dump. He goes to the the, the transfer station, as he calls it, like. That's his big social interaction for the week is like seeing other people from their car windows. Just he'll stay up there for hours. Um, he just like in his car hoping to see one of his friends so uh, they can talk to each other from behind their windows. Um, it's pretty. But my mom is still working. My mom is a nurse. So oh my she's gosh, uh, still so going scary. into work. Um, it is. And she is 65 years old and. Uh, she luckily works, she doesn't work in a hospital. She works for a family practice, but still has to see patients and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it's a uh, scary, scary time. But yeah, my dad is, uh, really living the life right um, now. <laughs> we talked a couple weeks ago with Amelia Bono, uh, about how states might use this, uh, as a, like, fake reason to ban abortion and uh it turns out that is yeah happening um multiple states have uh moved to uh ban abortion um so uh texas has uh, an abortion ban that has been allowed by the court ohio iowa and arkansas have restricted uh, ab abortion surgical procedures um Tennessee, Alabama, and Oklahoma have attempted restrictions that were blocked by the court. And Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Utah have pending efforts to stop abortions. Um, this is pretty fucked up. Uh, forced birth is always fucked up. But imagine being, you know, forced to give birth in the middle of a pandemic when, I mean, it's just, it's all horrible. But this is so sinister. Well, yeah, with, yeah. No, with no end in sight. And and probably you've lost if you if you had healthcare through your job yeah. you probably don't anymore. Um, and also all of the states that you mentioned that have these uh, these efforts to ban abortion, most of them already only have like one or two abortion clinics in very large states. Um, I think Mississippi only has one. Um, but yeah, most of those states 
relative to their physical size, do not already barely have any abortion clinics uh, or providers that perform. And you can't travel right now, uh, you know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, good luck, everybody. Um, That's essentially what. uh, I'm just like. All of all of our worst fears about the continual undermining of Roe have kind of come to pass, and uh, and especially at the state level. Um, luckily, it hasn't been at the federal level just yet, but um, to, you know, to the extent that we've seen at the state level, but it is that's probably one of the things that is like the most disheartening is that they will. Anti-choice advocates will use absolutely any excuse to make sure that women don't have reproductive freedom. Um, So it sucks and it's gross and I hate it and it makes me it makes me so angry. Me too. Yeah. One just one recommendation before we uh, before we go. I just wanted to say that I, you know, every now and again, you get a, you get a, an episode of of NPR's Fresh Air that actually does something, and they had on this, uh, this author talking about his book called The Velvet Rope Economy, and it was all about like the business of inequality. It's a great interview, and it really enraged me in like a good way. It talked about all the, the the different businesses that are set up specifically to cater to the super rich to make sure that they. Can get even like more what? advantages in life. Um, um, well, uh, college admissions is a big one. Obviously, that um, company Ivy Wise exists for, specifically for that reason. Like the um, consultants at Ivy Wise charge like a hundred thousand dollars per family. Um, and you know, Blade that basically Uber Ew. for helicopters. Um, <laughs> and. Yeah, it's kind of like creating this this caste system in this country that obviously like already exists to a certain extent, but like um basically that like the more and more services that cater to the super wealthy where they never have to interact with regular people or live like no- regular people do, the more it's creating this like total lack of empathy among the super rich like not even just the super rich like the upper middle class too in some cases but just like people like basically the like these very wealthy people just fundamentally do not understand how most people in America live and that is relevant for a number of reasons one of which being that that demographic of super rich people is almost entirely who makes up Congress and yeah, the federal it's government. Pretty fucked up. Uh, but we do have some good people running for office, and we just talked to one of them, Kathy Kunkel, uh, who is running in West Virginia. Um, she's really great, and we think that you'll enjoy uh, the interview with her. She's unopposed in her primary, so she's going to be running against uh, the Republican incumbents in November. And uh, she is awesome. We really hope to see her unseat him. Um, yeah. So uh, take care of yourselves this week. Uh, yeah, we hope uh, hope you're hanging in there, um, whether you're at home or at work. Uh, you know, damn. <laughs>
Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. Uh, here we are uh, in our respective homes, uh, broadcasting from our secret pandemic locations. Yes, it'll be over soon, I'm sure. Once again, absolutely. This week, we are joined by Kathy Kunkel, who is running for Congress in you, West Virginia. Welcome to Reply, guys, Kathy. So tell us a little bit about what the situation is like in West Virginia right now. Yeah, so, I mean, we're under a lockdown order like much of the rest of the country. Um, so I've been basically trying to run a campaign out of my apartment for the last five and a half weeks, which is definitely a strange experience. But this is, you know, also a strange experience for everyone. Um, and, you know, we're trying to adapt as best we can. And, you know, obviously our economy is really being uh, hurt by this. But, you know, public, it's, you know, it's necessary to protect public health and you can't have an economy without healthy people. So here we are. Your whole state is under lockdown order. Um, does the governor have a specific date when he plans to end it? Um, you know, schools are officially closed until April 30th. Um, and so I I assume we'll be hearing some announcements soon, like this week, about, you know, whether the governor is planning to ease restrictions in early May or whether he's planning to extend that or, you know, what what is going to happen. But, you know, it's like much of the rest of the country, we don't have enough testing here. So it's really, I think, difficult to to say, uh, you know, whether we're in a position to be able to to lift restrictions. And we've also unfortunately had a, a number of outbreaks at nursing homes, which is um, concerning, obviously. Um, so are you seeing that, uh, are there protesters in your state for people who want to just like open it back up right away? We haven't seen that yet. I think people have been pretty, um, pretty accepting of the shelter in place order. Um, at, at least till now. So, you know, we'll see. And I, you know, I hope that it stays that way. You know, obviously, I think a big part of this problem is that our government federally has just not done enough to really uh, uh, protect people economically as all of this has been happening. You know, we've seen that the the aid to small businesses has been really slow to trickle out. Um, the $1,200 checks have been slow to trickle out. There's still not clarity about rent payments and evictions and things like that. So just like, you know, basic needs are not being met. And, you know, like I, the, govern, the government really needs to, to step it up if it is serious about making it possible for people to stay sheltered in their homes for an indefinite period of time. Totally. And and I think that because in the absence of... Uh, adequate, anywhere near adequate action from the federal government. Um, we've basically seen an increased role of governors for the first time in, you know, I, I think a few decades at least. Um, there, I think there was some sort of piece about like the rise and return of the governor. Uh, now, West West Virginia's governor is uh, Jim Justice. Is that correct? Yeah, and he is the. Uh, I, I was doing some research on him. He is the wealthiest person in West Virginia. <laughs> yes, he is a billionaire coal CEO. Um, so, 
Okay, we we don't love to see it. Um, and so, what has what has his leadership been like, or or lack thereof, uh, throughout this pandemic? Because I'm I'm unfamiliar myself. Yeah, I mean, it's not been impressive. Uh, I mean, um, the good thing is that he did shut down the state back in mid March. Um, I think shortly after Ohio and Kentucky did. So, uh, you know, he recognized at least enough of the threat to realize that we were going to have to, to, to really shut down if we didn't want to overwhelm our hospital system here in West Virginia. Um, but, you know, in terms of, um, you know, being proactive about getting uh, protective equipment for healthcare workers and emergency workers in the state, um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, paid sick days. And, you know, he could, he could have convened a session of the legislature to, to press emergency measures like paid sick days um, and to, you know, expand uh, voting by mail. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that he could have done that he hasn't done. And I think fundamentally one of the, the biggest challenges is that his, his press conferences just uh, do not inspire a lot of confidence in his leadership. I mean, they're kind of all over the place and it's, it's just basically unclear what, criteria he's using to make decisions and you know it would be helpful to know like well when we get to you know this level of cases and we're, we're able to test this many people and the rate of infection is this amount we'll consider reopening the state but you know we don't get any kind of like real clear criteria or sense that he's doing anything much other than kind of flying by the seat of his pants which is not super inspiring i can imagine yeah <laughs> So um, let's jump into your campaign for a minute. Uh, aside from the pandemic, what are the main issues that West Virginians are facing right now? And what uh, what is your campaign about? Yeah, well, I feel like our campaign really is about the pandemic right now, just because, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that is the issue that everyone is facing. But at the same time, the pandemic, I think, really just exacerbates uh, and makes even more obvious the economic inequalities and uh, structural problems in our economy that our campaign had been talking about from the beginning. So, you know, now we have you know thousands of West Virginians who have lost employer-based healthcare in the last month, um, and you know, healthcare was a huge issue for this campaign from the beginning. I've, been a supporter of Medicare for all universal health care for the, you know, for the simple reason that uh, I don't think people should be going bankrupt or afraid to see a doctor because of the cost of, uh, of medical bills. And, you know, in one of the poorest states in the country, that is especially a problem. And, um, you know, so health care has been huge for this campaign pre-pandemic and just generally uh, revitalizing the economy here in West Virginia. You know, we we're a state that's been dominated by the um, by the fossil fuel industry for decades. You know, it's not a coincidence that our governor happens to be a billionaire coal CEO. Um, and yet, you know, as the rest of the country moves to deal with climate change and as our economy continues to transition away from fossil fuels, we need to to bring in federal resources into West Virginia uh, to manage that transition to to build a future that's less dependent on this kind of boom and bust cycle. That's always taken wealth out of West Virginia and left us always one of the poorest states in the country. West Virginia was a blue state until somewhat recently, right? 
Yeah, that's one of the things I think a lot of people um, outside of the state don't recognize. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, uh, West Virginia was, uh, in terms of voting for president, was voting uh, uh, Democratic up until 2000. But at the state level, our state legislature was Democratic uh, all the way up through 20, the 2014 election. Um, and so the Democratic Party actually controlled the state legislature from 1932 until 2014. What do you think were the factors in the change? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when the, the Democratic Party was in control of the state, it was still very much uh, a party of the coal industry, you know, the dominant industry of the state. And um, when, uh, so the, the Democratic Party in West Virginia also never really had uh, an interest in or an answer to, you know, what's the future of the state beyond coal and beyond natural resource extraction. And there was never any kind of serious effort put forward to try to, to diversify our economy or grow small businesses or, you know, do major infrastructure projects for, for uh, internet or safe drinking water. And um, so when the coal industry started collapsing a decade ago, the Democratic Party had no real answer to it either. And the Republicans were able to kind of come in and capitalize on that and say, you know, the Democratic Party was in power for 80 years and look, we're still really poor, which is true. Uh, and uh, so they were able to, to, to sort of take over at the state level. Um, and of course, uh, I'm sure you won't be surprised that they have not done any better and everything that they've done to, to roll back uh, protections for organized labor and uh, has, you know, gone in the wrong direction. But um, but yeah, you know, I think it was a failure of the Democratic Party to have a real economic vision for the state. The line of demarcation of some states like West Virginia becoming blue states, then turning to red states. I think that there are there are too many like op eds written that kind of provide overly facile explanations for that. Like it's all one thing or it's all the other. Do you agree with that? Do you think that there is just in general an oversimplification of the of the politics of southern states yeah definitely and i mean i think one way to see that pretty quickly in west virginia is like you know all the time we're sort of dismissed by the national media as like trump country and like sort of you know hopelessly red and republican and whatnot and yet at the same time we're also the state that launched uh, a nationwide wave of teacher strikes and you know both of those things you know, how can both of those things be true? Uh, you know, it, the, the politics of West Virginia are obviously much more complicated. And, and in my mind, they're actually really much more anti-establishment than either pro-Democrat or pro-Republican. Um, you know, when the Democratic Party started losing, losing its grip on state politics, most of the voters that they lost went over into being registered as independent, not registered Republican. Um, and, you know, similarly, um, you know, we had during the teacher strike, we had thousands of teachers in our state capital who were chanting about raising the tax on the gas industry to fund public employee health care. Um, and, you know, that's something that the Democratic Party in the state would never have come up with on its own either. I mean, it's just, you know, both parties are so captured by the fossil fuel industry, but the people of the state can see that we have been robbed, that all this wealth um, has been leaving the state for decades, and people are upset about it, as they should be. You mentioned, I think when we talked before, that there's actually a bunch of candidates running in West Virginia 
that were part of the teacher strike or inspired by the teacher strike. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's some teachers themselves who are running, which is fantastic. I think in my congressional district, there's um, at least five teachers who are running for um, state legislative office within the district. Um, but then more than that, there's a, a group called West Virginia Can't Wait um, that's been spearheaded by uh, Stephen Smith, who's one of the Democratic candidates for governor. Um, and we've got more than 90 candidates now, part of West Virginia Can't Wait. Um, and sort of the centerpiece of that is the pledge that we've all taken to not take corporate money in our campaigns, um, which again, you know, going back to the, the domination of the state and both parties in the state by uh, coal and gas interests, it's really, I think, significant to have um, have so many candidates who are running independent of that. Um, and I know from talking to Stephen that um, that the teacher strike was one of the things that inspired him to, to decide to run this year. It definitely feels, I don't know, I think especially since Bernie suspended his campaign, there's part of me that like feels honestly a little bit hopeless about the future of returning power to the working class. It feels... I don't know. It just it's it started to feel like, man, these corporations just have such a firm hold on everything and that so many people either don't have a problem with that or don't realize the extent of the problem. How's your hopefulness level in regards to your own campaign right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, the Democratic primary did not shake out in the way that I was hoping either. Um, and yeah, I mean, but we, I mean, we always knew it would be an uphill battle here and it always has been an uphill battle in West Virginia. I mean, like the gains that have been made, you know, looking back at like the mine wars uh, in the twenties and thirties were just, you know, against incredible odds. And so, you know, fighting, corporate power in West Virginia is really, is really nothing new. And I think that we need to like, not think about this as something that's like won or lost in a single election. I I can, I totally co-sign that entire uh, sentiment. Obviously I'm like totally devastated about uh, Bernie's Bernie not being the nominee in a time where I think that someone with his leadership is uh is so desperately needed in in a an absolute crisis like this but i have been so inspired by the organizing that i've seen both electorally and not i mean i think the teacher strikes are actually a great um a great example of that and the fact that these teacher strikes happened in what we now think of as red states um continues to be to be very inspiring to me do you think that if the democratic party became explicitly more pro-union that that would do anything to to shift the tide in in a place like west virginia or is it to have the cultural politics kind of um of of the the two-party system become too polarizing I mean, I always think it's helpful if the Democratic Party would return to its working class roots. I mean, look, look at the 2016 presidential primary in West Virginia on the Democratic side. I mean, Bernie beat Hillary Clinton in every single county in the state. I mean, I think people can see that um, that the Democratic Party has stepped away from representing working class interests. And that's not like a very recent thing either. I mean, I think 
goes back to NAFTA. And, you know, you saw that in all the trouble that Hillary Clinton had in the Rust Belt. But people remember that NAFTA uh, closed a lot of factories in America and that the Democratic Party was, you know, 100% for it. Um, so, so yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think the way that we push back against the sort of culture war issues is to have a different fight. And the fight needs to be for economic justice and for working people. Back to your own campaign, what are some of the, I know you mentioned Medicare for All, what are some of the other things in your platform? Yeah, I mean, the Green New Deal is certainly one of them. And you know, part of why I ran was because you know, I wanted to really try to flesh out what that would actually mean in a place like West Virginia, because you know, we, we need to get, get specific uh, about you know, the kinds of resources uh, and the sort of future economy that we could have in West Virginia. So, you know, infrastructure investment has got to be a huge part of it. You know, I hear, and it's, you know, it's evident now in the pandemic when people are suddenly trying to rely on like telehealth and doing schoolwork from home and things like that, that our, our internet service is a, is a disaster in West Virginia. Um, but, you know, beyond, beyond the pandemic, like it was obviously holding our state back as well in terms of small business development and tourism. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's really hard to attract young people to stay in a place or move back to a place um, if they if they can't have reliable internet. Um, so internet's huge, safe drinking water, transportation. Um, you know, there's just, there's thousands of good paying jobs that we could be creating in this state with real uh, infrastructure investment that would, that would be the lay a foundation for, for other sectors of our economy, like agriculture and tourism and, you know, more small business development and clean energy manufacturing. Um, but we've got to, got to kind of start with a different vision. We can't, can't, the future economy of West Virginia is not going to be the same as the past as much as uh, people in power who have made their money off of the fossil fuel industry might want to think that it will be. I completely agree. Um, let me see. Uh, okay. I just, I have, I have one quick, oh, quick question. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I was looking at your website, um, on your, your platform page and I was really interested about, um, your approach to the, uh, addiction epidemic. And I know that that is, uh, something that I've seen again, it's, it's another one of those, kind of uh, oversimplified explanations that gets applied to places like West Virginia, same with like Trump, Trump country and like a hot zone of the opioid epidemic or something like that. Um, so I just wanted to, know, I was really interested uh, in, in your, in your approach and your proposal for how you would approach um, the epidemic. Uh, would you, would you care to talk about that? Yeah, of course. No, it is, it is a huge issue here in West Virginia. I'm certainly uh, one of the leading states in the nation for overdose deaths. Um, and, you know, it's not just opioids. I would really characterize it as a crisis of addiction, you know, whether it's opioids or meth or heroin, um, you know, the, the drug of choice can change, but but addiction is, is the real disease here. Um, and there's also obviously not an easy answer to it. Um, one thing that's clear is that the state is just very under-resourced in general in terms of, um, you know, having resources for, for treatment, but also for long-term recovery. Because, you know, you can put 
you can have someone go through a 30-day treatment program, but if they come right back out of it and go back to the same neighborhood and the same situation that they were in before, you know, it's very easy to fall back into the same patterns. And, you know, from talking to folks who have been successful in their recovery, um, a key element of it really is, you know, long-term sober living environments um, where people, you know, can be safe and, and stable and have access to resources to find jobs and things like that. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that we really need to, to scale up in this state. Great. Yeah, I was I I was really interested to read what you had to say uh, about it because it's it's honestly not it's not an issue that I think about enough. I think, um, and I really liked the kind of ground up model that you described, starting in you know children's school years, not a a dare style program telling kids not to do drugs, but increasing resources for mental health and after school programs, which are so important. And obviously it's an economic issue as well as all of these things are. (laughs) But um, if you look at Iceland, I mean, that was the story that really kind of inspired me. I mean, Iceland has made such a difference in reducing teen substance abuse issues. And it's really by a commitment to after school programs and activities to youth and just you know, give young, giving young people something to do. And that is so sorely lacking in many communities in West Virginia. And I think it's a great model uh, that we could follow. You know, like you said, the, the D.A.R.E. program that I went through in school and probably did too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I definitely remember Officer Buchanan in my elementary school and uh, signing a pledge to never do drugs for the rest of my life. Um to switch gears here for a second, let's talk a little bit about your opponent. Who are you running against at this point? Yeah, so um, I'm actually unopposed in the Democratic primary, um, but I will be uh, most likely running against the Republican incumbent in the fall, um, and that is Alex Mooney. So he has held this seat since 2014. He actually used to be a state senator in Maryland and then lost an election there and decided to to move over to West Virginia to run for this seat. So a bit of a political opportunist, you might say. <laughs> we'll go so far as to say that. We'll say it. Yeah, I uh, I don't think he listens to this podcast, so uh, we're going to go ahead. If you, if you can't say it, Kate and I will say it for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I mean, he's been, he's just uh, a very, very ideologically driven guy to the point where he voted against the first of the coronavirus relief bills, you know, that had expanded sick days and expanded food assistance. And, um, you know, he was one of the 40 folks who voted against that basically in the like, how are we going to pay for it camp, which is really, you know, not, not the question you should be asking when people are suffering in a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, let alone letting everyone have this virus for a couple of years is definitely going to have an economic cost as well. It's not like people are just going to, you know, it's not like you can just ignore it and then it goes away. Um, I'm really confused about what these Republicans think is going to happen. <laughs> I know. So what does campaigning look like when you're sheltering at home? Yeah, well, it's certainly weird. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, no, but, but, you know, we're lucky to be part of this whole West Virginia can't wait uh, group of candidates that I mentioned before. And one of the things that we've been doing with that is that we've 
kind of converted the the field operation that we've been still starting to build up through that into um, kind of a neighborhood captain program where we've got um, hundreds of volunteers now who are uh, reaching out to voters um, and following up with them. So like sending them a letter and following up with a phone call, um, stuff like that, just to, to check in on folks to make sure that people have information about the election and how to vote because West Virginia's voting got all screwed up by this too. We moved the primary day to change the absentee voting laws. So there's a lot, a lot of voter confusion that we're trying to, trying to make sure people have the right information. Um, but yeah, yeah. So we're, you know, we're just mobilizing volunteers to be contacting people remotely. Um, and, you know, so far, um, you know, I think it's going as well as we can. We're, we're doing Facebook live things and, you know, lots as much kind of digital stuff as we can, but, you know, unfortunately, there's also no real substitute to campaigning person. So, but got to do what we can. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like it's unfortunate because it seems like when people can't go to door to door that the overwhelming likelihood is that it will favor incumbents. But let's hope not, man, because they're doing such a bad job right now. Like I was looking at this coronavirus bill today and they don't the Democrats didn't even push for contact tracing in there, which we know is one of the most important things when it comes to figuring out who has been exposed to the virus. Um, and, you know, if you're ever going to, if we're ever going to be able to let people safely out of their homes without just accepting, you know, that a bunch of people are going to die, um, we need this. And it's really fucked up um, that the incumbents for the most part are, are doing such a bad job. There are, you know, exceptions like Ilhan Omar, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, of course, you know, and some notable others. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we really need a lot of these people out. Yeah, yeah. I, I really have no idea. And I mean, obviously, no one's campaigned in a pandemic since like 1918, and we can't really ask them. So, you know, I think we're just really in uncharted territory here and you know i agree with everything you said like on the one hand it favors incumbents but on the other hand it doesn't so i don't know <laughs> is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want to talk about no i don't think so um i mean if folks you know want more information about the campaign definitely um check out conkleforcongress.com so yeah we're gonna we're gonna um link to all of your uh, web presence and your handles uh, on social media as well. Great. Thank you. All right, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on Reply, guys. And if you're listening to this and you have some extra cash, uh, which we know is in, you know, in short supply right now, but, you know, if for some reason you're uh, still in a position where you can make a donation, please donate to Kathy's campaign. Um, at least spread the word on social media. And if you live in West Virginia, please vote for her by mail. Great. Thank, well, thank you. you so much for having me, guys. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out
walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine. 